Welcome back to The Big Questions. As usual, I'm your host, Dylan Riddle. And this week, I'm joined by my colleague, Managing Director and Chief Economist, Robin Brooks. Robin, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to do this. Yeah, we're glad to have you back. I want to jump into the two really interesting U.S. labor market reports that you've put out recently, but I think it's more helpful for our listeners to start kind of with your outlook on the global economy, as obviously that's going to feed into your outlook on the U.S. labor market. The last time you were on the show, we spent some time talking about how it was three revisions on global growth in something like a month. I'm not sure if you know what number revision we're on now, but could you kind of walk us through what your outlook is? Yeah. So first off, it is July 1st. So we're gearing up for July 4th holiday. And we are therefore in the third quarter. So I've seen some jokes on Twitter how the first half of the year is over and we only have to do this one more time. And I think if the second half of the year is as turbulent and as uncertain as the first half of the year, then I think we're all in a lot of trouble. We spent, like anyone else, the first part of the year constantly revising our outlook given the huge uncertainty from this virus. We were among the first to downgrade our growth outlook, but in reality, things have turned out to be much worse than we initially expected. And our global growth number currently that we're tracking, so this is not something that we've published in any of our headline publications around minus 5%. To give you an idea, the global recession in 2008-2009 was around minus 1.8%. So this is much worse and reflects the huge shock from the COVID-19 virus. But are we still expecting it to be a relatively short-term shock? Is this a V recovery or obviously now that we've seen the virus in the US at least continue to kind of spread out of control, it looks more likely it might be a W or something like that. What's your outlook on the shape of the recovery? Are we still going to be able to bounce back? Yeah, so Dylan, that's the key question, right? How quickly can we recover? And honestly, the underlying question is, will we have a vaccine anytime soon? And if we don't get a vaccine anytime soon, then how many outbreaks will we have as we try and reopen? Honestly, That is completely up in the air. So we're forecasting a return to positive growth in the third quarter for the United States. We're forecasting an output gap by the end of the year that's going to be anything between 5 and 6%, which for the United States is very large. So we are between an L, not a great recovery at all, and the swoosh with not much of a swoosh. Focusing on the U.S., your expectation for the labor market is a little bit more downbeat than the Fed estimates. Can you elaborate on kind of what you're expecting on the unemployment and the potential bounce back there? Yeah, of course. Um, So the Fed, of course, like all of us, is trying to figure out what's going on. And they are facing and trying to digest the same kind of uncertainty that we are facing. And so their forecasts are subject to the same uncertainty. So to give you an idea, We have currently an unemployment rate in the United States of 13.3%. We're getting labor market data on Friday this week. It's always the first Friday of the month. And consensus expects the unemployment rate to decline to 12.5%. And the Fed thinks that by the end of this year, the unemployment rate will be around 9.3%. So a gradual recovery. 
Most importantly, the Fed expects that the longer-term unemployment rate is going to be around 4.1%, which is the same long-term unemployment rate that it had before this shock. And we are much more pessimistic. We think that the unemployment rate by the end of the year will be 11%. So we're basically anticipating a much slower recovery than the Fed has penciled in. Ours is 11%. That is essentially 9%. And so what's different about this shock, though? Why does this shock create a different response in the labor market than the recession did? Obviously, it's notably sharper and imposed because of public policy and public health concerns. But what is the lasting impact of that? So that's the key question. Typically, recessions in the United States in the labor market hit manufacturing hardest. So that's where we see job losses the most. This time around, it is completely different. We have essentially shut down parts of our economy where social distancing is really hard. Think restaurants, think movie theaters, think airplane travel where we, you know, sit closely together. All these kinds of things we have basically for big parts of the second quarter shut down. So if you look at job losses since February, the data through May, roughly 20 million job losses. And 10 million of those are in retail, hospitality. So that's things like hotels, restaurants, leisure, things like sporting events, theater, and so forth. It's all those sectors that have been hard hit. All the uncertainty about when a vaccine can be found impacts things like restaurants and hotels and airplane travel. And so it is likely that we will have a much slower recovery there. That's one of the reasons why our unemployment rate forecast is coming down slower. And then the big thing is that this shock is accelerating structural change in retail, which already was seeing a big bleed to online shopping. And this shock is accelerating that. So we're talking about accelerating trends and obviously being an election year here in the U.S., that means there's a lot of politicians talking about the lack of manufacturing employment in the U.S. How much of this acceleration and impact on the services sector is also just a reflection of the trend that's moved the U.S. more into the service sector or service economy and away from these hard industries like manufacturing or mining and things like that? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So the United States has seen a steady decline in manufacturing employment over time and a shift to services, right? So that's partly because that shift is happening globally in advanced economies. It's also because over the last two decades, we've had globalization. And so some of the manufacturing jobs, especially in the 1990s and 2000s, moved to other parts of the world. So it's made us much more vulnerable to a change in the services sector and how it employs people. So going back to these structural changes, the big issue that we're facing is that even before the virus, people were shifting to online buying. So Amazon obviously has become a huge force in retail, replacing brick and mortar retail. And so that's been a huge change. If you think about number of people employed for a million dollar sales generated in one year, Amazon, other e-commerce retailers employ about 0.7 employees for $1 million in transactions per year. And traditional brick and mortar retail like department stores employ eight or nine people. So the difference in employment is huge. 
And then I think more broadly, right, this shock adds to cost pressure on lots of services industries. And so the first response when you have cost pressure is to cut your variable costs. And a big part of that is employment. So I think we'll see a lot of employment reduction and automation potentially in back office jobs in lots of services sectors. So things like accounting, bookkeeping, compliance, et cetera, all these things that you can basically automate. I'm glad you brought up the data on how many employees it takes to make a million dollars in sales. So I think that's one of the most interesting charts that you come back to. And obviously, that just encapsulates the Amazon effect on retail. But going back to the last point that you made on automation, so does that mean essentially a lot of these jobs are gone for good? Obviously, we've focused a lot on this temporary layoff versus permanent layoff number that shows up in the jobs report. How much of this do you think is actually gone? Is there any that's actually gone? And kind of what do you see with when we have a reopening? Are people going to get their service jobs waiting back? Yep, key question. So let me go back to some of the numbers we were discussing two questions ago. Since February, 20 million jobs have been lost of which 10 million, about half, are in these heavily socially exposed sectors like leisure, hospitality, retail, travel. And so we estimate, based on their exposure to social distancing, that about a quarter of those 10 million jobs may be lost permanently, 2.5 million jobs roughly. And so that's a pretty big number, right? Over 10% of the total jobs that have been lost since February. So if we're right about that, then I think that is something that's concerning and it matters for policy. Why? If you think that a shock is temporary, then it makes a lot of sense to issue debt and smooth consumption. That's sort of econ 101. But if you are facing a permanent shock, so if your income is getting hit more permanently and jobs are lost more permanently, then the onus of policy should be shifting from debt to structural reforms like retraining people for different job opportunities and that kind of thing. So in the end, this comes down to policy and what policymakers need to be thinking about and doing. Just to put that two and a half million jobs number into context, how does that compare with the financial crisis in 2008, 2009 and the recession afterwards? Yeah, key issue. So obviously, we didn't have this kind of pullback in services jobs in the global financial crisis. It was mostly manufacturing. And the picture after the global financial crisis was really quite different because China at the time did a truly gargantuan stimulus, and it lifted a lot of manufacturing back out of its slump. The fact that back then China was a, was a global growth engine and in many respects a consumption engine is a big difference from today and we just don't have that today. So the services picture this time around is much more dire. And you've written in your last piece about the difference between red and blue states. Obviously, the initial impact of the virus was concentrated in blue states, these big metropolitan areas that typically have voted Democrat or at least in the last election voted for Hillary Clinton. Previously, you have written about the structural differences in the labor markets in each of these states, regardless of the virus. So can you tell us a little bit about that? So first of all, I think we have never in the history of the United States in an election year had this amount of labor market dislocation, right? It's stunning. I mean, we have the unemployment rate going from in the threes 
to now 13.3%. And we'll see, hopefully, it comes down a little bit this Friday in the June data. But that amount of dislocation in the labor market in a year when people are voting in the summer immediately before an election, we've never had it. And so how that plays into the election, I think, is anybody's guess. Now, the sort of perceived wisdom is that a recession in an election year obviously hurts the incumbent. We'll have to see. Um, One of the things that is unusual is that, as you said, Blue states are more urban, they are more services oriented, people are closer together, so social distancing is more difficult. And so some of the states that have been hit hardest are deeply blue states. So there's obvious tourist magnets like Nevada, right, Las Vegas, or Hawaii, where unemployment rates have shot up and, and employment generally has plummeted. But then big blue states like California. New York have been hit hard too. And so, you know, is this going to be as straightforward as saying a recession is bad for the incumbent? I'm not sure. It's very difficult to say at this point. And of course, the wildcard factor is that the virus has now spread to some more red states, whether that's Arizona or Texas. So of course, we don't necessarily have it under control in the US, and that's going to add a whole nother layer of complexity. But I wanted to jump on one other point that you had made in your latest labor markets red versus blue report, which was that this shock has been so severe that it's actually closed the employment gap between red and blue states for the first time since the 90s. That seems pretty striking. So if you can kind of elaborate on that and then also dig into what happened in the 90s that set this difference that's now lasted for essentially 30 years. I'm glad you bring up that observation because it's a key feature of the United States that the way that our economy has developed has tended to benefit blue states over red states. And that's not I think so much a reflection of policy, it's a reflection of geography. You know, think tech, for example, and the huge cluster of jobs in the Bay Area. So people like to live there. And of course, there's a huge conflagration of human capital, lots of smart people around there. So more and more people are flocking there. Same thing for the East Coast. So we have these labor markets in parts of the United States that happen to be blue that are mainly a reflection of desirable geography and kind of positive pre-existing conditions. Now, what has happened, obviously, is that huge amounts of services have clustered around those. So these are people who are very busy, they're working hard, long hours. So, you know, they do a lot of food delivery, they do a lot of outsourcing of basic services. And so that's where the hit has been biggest. It's quite stunning if you look at the employment to population ratio, the number of people employed in blue states in aggregate versus red states in aggregate. The blue state number has crashed down to red state levels in the recent data. And it's really unprecedented. It's the first time since the mid-90s that that's been the case. And it's basically because the intensity of labor market development in blue states had been higher than in red states. Yeah, I was actually just realizing on this call, there's three of us, obviously, you and I and our producer, Kate Sammer, but none of us are from D.C., obviously, D.C. not being a state per se, but one of those blue metropolitan areas that attracts talent and labor from all around the country. 
The last question I wanted to get into, and you kind of mentioned it at the top of the call, actually, but you spend a lot of time working on output gaps and kind of the impact on policy. For listeners that don't know, an output gap is basically a measurement of the economy's potential versus its actual output, if that's fair, Robin. You mentioned if two and a half million jobs are lost, how does that impact how we measure our output gap in the U.S. here? You've done a lot of work on the European side, but I'm curious about how this changes the outlook on the U.S. side, because, of course, output gaps are used for a lot of policy decisions to measure everything from whether or not a stimulus package or fiscal spending should be aimed towards the recovery. Yeah. So we have some great institutions in the United States that think incredibly hard about this. and so. One of those was the Congressional Budget Office, which is just across town from our office, if we ever return to our office. And they have a structural unemployment rate for the United States of 4.6%. It's around that. To put this in perspective, before this shock with an unemployment rate in the threes, we were below full employment, meaning that the unemployment rate was actually below this 4.6% number and the labor market was tight. Now, at 13.3%, we're obviously in a situation where the unemployment rate is far higher. And so we have a lot of slack in the labor market. And I think a key question for policy, Dylan, to what you're asking is, historically, we've always said, well, if the unemployment rate goes up, right, if we have this huge jump in the threes to above 13%, then some of this damage to the labor market may be permanent. The reality is, that thinking stems from manufacturing, right? You're, you're working in a steel mill or you're working producing some kind of widget, and it's, it's very technical and requires specific training. But services jobs are pretty fungible, right? If you're selling in a department store or if you're selling in some kind of other part of retail or in social media, the amount of training that you need may be much less. And so are thinking about should the structural unemployment rate be going up because of the shock? Maybe wrong. We may end up with huge amounts of unemployment, huge amounts of labor market slack. That translates into deflationary pressure. And this is the discussion that's now starting. Should the Fed be accommodated for much longer? Will we be left with far more underutilized resources in the labor markets? Huge issues. And frankly, because we're all in crisis mode, you know, fighting one fire after another with this virus. It's a discussion that's only just starting. We're only just starting to look over the horizon. And so your question is really on point. Yeah, I don't know whether that's comforting or kind of uh, disconcerting that (laughs) we're only at the beginning of what could be a, a long, grueling recovery here in the US. But that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for joining us, Robin. Thanks so much. Hope you guys have me back. (laughs) Absolutely. Thanks for joining us this week. We'll be back with another episode. But until then, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify.